Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are discussing Whiplash! No, it is not the medical condition we are discussing, nor is it Judas Priest's latest hit, nor is it even an action movie. It is the second installment in our Damien Chazelle retrospective series leading up to First Man this November. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan from Chicago, but you know, after seeing this movie, you it might be considered a medical condition of whiplash. That's very true. You might have experienced some whiplash, how your emotions are slammed around oh, yeah. <laughs> during this movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. Alan is the one that introduced Whiplash to me. I did. It's kind of a funny story. Uh, actually, I do have a story with this. Not as uh, crazy or as good, I guess, as the as the, my story for La La Land. But my introduction to this movie was actually my sophomore year of college. And my cousin, Tommy, he was the one who did the... Uh, it was the, Yeah, it was the Jurassic Park retrospective. He helped us start off. He was a special guest for the first one. He was one who showed this movie to me, and he watched it with his parents, and he said, you have to see this. And so I remember it was in his small dormitory in the middle of campus, and we watched this movie, and I just remember, I remember at one scene, and we'll talk about that scene when we get there, but there was one scene where I had to pause it and like take a breather because it had gotten so intense, um, and it left me was in such a state of awe that I, we had to take a short break, but I remember that vividly and i think i've seen this movie like oh geez six times since that day so yeah i have this is not my first rodeo with really any well it was i guess the last the latest two chazelle flicks i have seen multiple times over and over again so i guess since when, when i wa- i guess it would yeah, would have been right when i watched whiplash yes yeah, so alan was enamored with it he wanted to share that with me I believe you brought over the disc. Yeah, at the time I had the DVD. And for whatever reason, the English part of it, the English uh, audio was in stereo, but there was also a French <laughs> version uh, of the language stuff. That was in 5.1. We never, I, it was so weird. Well, thankfully we did watch it in the theater room. So we got kind of a kick up in sound. So it was still pretty loud and boisterous and gave us a pretty immersive experience. One, that I had a similar experience to Alan. I was pretty stressed out. Yes, I remember this. Most of this because how – we'll get into why. But how could you not be because of how emotionally it pulls you in, jerks you around, and then how it has a very stunning conclusion Mm -hmm. that – uh wow okay we're gonna talk about it i don't want to start tipping my hand too soon right but right uh this is only my second time watching whiplash my first time was with alan a few years ago this movie came out in uh 2015 2014 okay yeah came out in 2014 and we watched it not i don't know if we watched it in 2014 maybe early 2015 it it would have been pretty early about midway through 2015, actually, when we watched it. I remember that. So it was about okay. halfway through 2015. I think it was over the summer when we watched it. So it's been roughly just over three years since I've watched Whiplash. Came to it back for the second time just for this review. 
And yeah, I'm interested to talk about how my thoughts have changed right. since first watching it. Right. And even watching it, I guess this be my sixth or seventh time, I still noticed some things, a couple of things that we would talk about this viewing that I had never seen before uh, that are pretty impactful to the story. So yeah, we'll definitely get to that. But uh, are you ready for some background info? Because this is interesting too. Yeah, I'm pretty interested because especially coming after Chazelle's last movie and then coming to this, it's quite the leap with what he can do. Right. All right. So here's the background info. Back in high school, Damien Chazelle had a, a pretty rough and competitive da- jazz teacher. Uh, the way that he taught the class pretty much terrified Chazelle and it took a pretty big toll on him emotionally and physically. Like there, I think he mentioned that it was hard for him to eat before practices because that class was so draining for him. Well, he took this experience and basically made it the backbone of what would become Whiplash. And But before it was released, Chazelle's real passion was actually La La Land, and he really wanted to get that movie off the ground, but couldn't find the financial uh, stability to do so. And so he opted for Whiplash to more or less fund what would become, or, or I guess what, what would become La La Land, both in terms of money and then also in terms of popularity. So... At the time, he wrote kind of out of spite the this script for Whiplash because he couldn't get La La Land, his dream, dream off the ground. Well, Chazelle, he kind of needed funding to make a full-length picture of just Whiplash itself. And so he made a short film with, uh, I think the guy, it was a short film and it was aided by Right of Way, right of Way Films in Blumhouse. It was about 15 minutes long. I have seen it. Uh, there, It's basically just the one, it's just one scene of the movie um, take it 15 minutes. We'll talk about what scene that is when we get there, because um, it kind of goes into spoilers. But basically, this whole entirety, the entirety of this short film makes it into the movie in some place. Uh, so the main character actually wasn't played by Miles Teller as it is in the film. It was actually played by uh, Johnny Simmons, not related to J.K. Simmons. Although J.K. Simmons was still Fletcher in the short film. Uh, he was now... Johnny Simmons was replaced by Miles Teller, as I said, as the main character of Andrew Neiman. So, anyways, after that happened, it, that played at Sundance and got some pretty... It, it won the Grand Jury Award, which is like the highest award you can get at Sundance. And so, that got a lot of people interested and got some producers and somebody came rolling, rolling in. And so, Chazelle signed on with uh, Bold... I think Bold Films? Yeah, Bold Films, and they gave him a budget of about $3.3 million, right? It was Bold Films and Blumhouse and Right of Way. They all kind of came together to do this. So early in production, uh, Chazelle told J.K. Simmons that he doesn't want to see a human on screen. He wants to see a monster. And one of the ways that J.K. Simmons did this while also trying to keep the mood not as... Uh, not as negative as he was apparently reported to be quite the sweet. He's reported to be one of the sweetest men, al- sweetest men alive when he was not acting, when he was not in character. And, but the problem is production wasn't exactly um, pristine, not necessarily bad, but it was insanely stressful according to uh, Chazelle himself, because they only had 19, 20 days to film this entire movie. And I don't know, really know, I don't really know why that is, but I'm guessing it's probably because of planning and scheduling because of the place they were going to. Most of this movie takes place in at the Schaefer College. So I'm guessing that was the biggest reason is that they just couldn't keep it open enough for them to do all the filming for a for an extended period of time. 
I don't have, once again, I don't have confirmation. That's just what I'm guessing. But anyways, uh, so yeah, it took 19 days and they acted for about 14 hours per day, just basically straight on. They wouldn't stop for 19 days, 14 hours of the entire day. Uh, luckily, he said that both Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons were pretty good at snapping it out of character really quick. And so when they were done with the take, they would become pretty much normal human beings and they would be pretty much fine, uh, which made the acting process pretty much tr- pretty streamlined compared to what it could have been. But he said that himself, this is a quote from him, uh, no one was sleeping and everyone was exhausted. And J.K. cracked two ribs when Miles Teller tackles him in that scene. And we'll talk about that scene in a minute. And I got in a car accident halfway through the shoot. My relationships were crumbled because of the shoot. The only thing that made the shoot possible, let alone successful, was the actors and the crew. They were working insane hours, and they were so focused on the work at hand. All of us felt passionately about the same movie and getting it right. And a lot of people involved in the film, whether cast or crew, had a music experience that came with that came from that world. So we were all on the same page, trying to make this as authentic as a portrait as possible of that world. It was a lot more fun than it had any right to be. And the craziest part is that this movie was shot, edited, and submitted to Sundance in 10 weeks, which is pretty incredible for for any really any kind of movie. Well, it hit up Sundance and did and pretty much it got pretty much universal praise almost all across the board. The fo- the feature length movie did. And now it had a limited run, only played in six theaters, but it still gained a pretty good, pretty sizable amount of money. It had a $3.3 million budget, but gained $49 million in the box office. And it went on to come with a few Oscars, three of them, in fact, and two nominations. It got uh, Best Performance by an Actor in a Performing Role by J.K. Simmons, Best Achievement in Sound Mixing, and Best Achievement in Filmmaking, and and was nominated for Best Writing Adapted Screenplay and Best Picture, uh, which was the lowest grossing movie ever to be nominated for that. Uh, So yeah, by the end of its run, theatrically at least, it got $49 million total as worldwide. I think it was about 30 something. No, it was about 13 million here in the States and the rest of it was all uh, out past the, uh, it was was outside of that. It was worldwide. So it got, and so right now it's standing on IMDb with an eight and a half and I did have a cinema score, so I looked up Rotten Tomatoes just out of curiosity, and it's got a 94%. So to say that this movie has uh, had some kind of impact is kind of an understatement, because a lot of people, I remember when I first heard about this movie, a lot of people were talking about it, and they were like, holy cow, you have to see Whiplash. I think that would have been when it hit up. It got a lot of popularity when it was in the limited run, and then it got even more once the Oscars came around, and then once that happened, a lot of the DVD sales skyrocketed for this movie. I think that's where it made back most of its money would have been with home media. That's a pretty fascinating history, and one that seems to be pretty close to kind of what we get on screen. So the dedication of our main character was kind of the dedication of Chazelle along with the stresses and trials going through it but also it seems like uh he got some pretty great uh, reward out of it just not just um accolade wise but personally he said it was still nevertheless a great experience with the filmmaking and mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a pretty amazing um second run at filmmaking coming off of his first one which you can go listen to our review of that in the archives here, we have to think about that. Um, right. But, yeah, I was surprised to see Blumhouse Productions. 
Right. It, normally they're associated with horror, but I guess in some sense this could be considered horror. But genre-wise, <laughs> yeah, this is more so. of a this is more of a drama uh, than anything else. Yeah, which is very interesting for Blumhouse um, that they picked up this movie, and I think this is one of the things that actually kind of helped put them on the map in terms of making good films and maybe even what got them get out for all we know. Uh, they're just known for making movies on a very small budget, which for them is very financially viable and they make a lot of good money off of that. Yeah. And it got Jason Blum, the Oscar nomination for best picture right. of the year. Also, I saw right. Sony pictures classics was attached to it. So that's probably Sony's indie label, kind of like a Fox searchlight. I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, that is. It's. I'm guessing it has to do with one of the companies that are named off right of way or Bold Pictures. They're probably a subsidiary of Sony Pictures Classic. That's probably where it's coming from. Also, I noticed this movie has gained such prestige and popularity that according to the IMDb users, it is the 44th greatest film of all time. Yeah, which is nuts to say because this is what Chazelle's technically second. Yeah, it would be a second feature length movie. Yeah, I guess the first one that actually got a, a sub any kind of theatrical release. Uh, I don't think Guy and Metal. I never went out to the theaters. Like it was just strictly uh, film festivals. I know we're not to La La Land yet, but what is it with Chazelle putting out so far these wildly popular films that garner immense buzz, immense accolades before, well, the mass audience can see them. And then it's like really hard for people to see them. Because I know when La La Land, when Whiplash came out, it it wasn't even on my radar. I didn't even really know anything about it until I saw JK give a speech and they played a clip. I'm like, well, that looks interesting. And that was a good Oscar speech. Yeah. And and then Alan is like, you have to see this movie. I'm bringing it over. And I'm like, okay, I don't even know what this is. And then when La La Land comes out, I have no idea that Chazelle is attached to either film. I don't even know who he is. And then everybody's talking about it. And kids from my college drove all the way down to Dallas to watch it at like South by Southwest or something or wherever that's held. Holy. And Holy. Yeah. And um, one of the former – uh, graduates from my college is he uh, works for the newspaper and he's writing these immense reviews about it and everybody's like we have to go see it but it's like pretty much impossible to go see and then it did come to my hometown and they're like okay you got to go see it quick because it's not going to be here very long and i just what what's up with that chazelle is like oh you want to see my masterpiece you better see it quick oh and then everybody talks about it and can't wait to see it <laughs> right it, it could be just a distribution thing there isn't enough money to make it a wide release there could be a number of different reasons for that i don't exactly know i think whip i know la la land got a much bigger release probably because of whiplash than whiplash ever did uh, in terms yeah. of at least a theatrical uh, screening. I know La La Land, that one, I have a pretty interesting story of when we get to that movie next week. But yeah, Whiplash was mostly, you you would most, most likely see this on home media or through like running it off iTunes than you would being able to see it in theater. This was, this had a uh, six theater, I think it was the max that it actually went to without the six theaters, which still for the money that it got back is pretty, pretty dang good. Uh, about 49 million. Well, I think that might have been six theaters domestically, but still 13 million is not not bad at all. I don't know what the if those numbers also account for the worldwide release 
or if they don't, I don't really know. Well, and now I, I know it just seems funny that Chazelle did amazing with this and they're like, well, La La Land, you know, it's not going to be as widely distributed. It will be some, we'll see. And then it was just, you know, the phenomenon of the decade, if not the century right, so right. far. Oh, absolutely. And, absolutely. Well, and it went on to be what, one of the three or four movies that have ever got the big 14 yeah. nominations. Yep. <laughs> and that's like what, what his third movie oh yeah and then but now with first man i'm from what i understand it will be widely distributed pretty much for everybody to see yeah i wouldn't i would be more surprised if it isn't actually because he has made especially with la la and he's made such a name for himself now in just kind of american cinema yeah that I would be surprised if Murph First Man doesn't get a wide release. Now that he's... Uh, maybe even bigger than Lala Land. Right, now that he's proved himself. He first had to garner, right. uh, what, between both films, like nearly 20 Oscar nominations. Easy, yeah, <laughs> easy. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, Alan, I know you're, you've been in band. You play the trumpet, mm -hmm. correct? I do. Well, I did. Uh, this semester, I think I mentioned this in the last movie, the guy Madeline. I don't do it this year because uh, the way that they have it set up, I'm only here for one more semester. And the way that they have it set up is that I have to do both semesters in terms of band. Because first semester is primarily marching band. Second semester is primarily concert band. I have to do both to get the scholarship. And if I only do one, they don't give me the scholarship because there's really no point. So that's where I'm at. I'm not doing it this year. But I have done it basically non-stop since i was a no fifth grade i want to say i think it was fifth grade i've always played i played the trumpet in band in school since fifth grade so yeah okay so would you say you've mostly had a positive experience because somebody watching this movie it might scare them away from band maybe yeah, I definitely nothing close to what this movie has to offer. Uh, usually, I mean, to be fair, my teachers in high school and kind of college as well, they were more uh, worried that, or I guess they were, their focus was more towards pushing us to do more than what we are capable of. Kind of what Fletcher's idea is in this movie, but not nearly to that same degree that Fletcher goes to. Um, but yes, for the most part, it was pretty positive. This is... I. I don't think that this movie should scare you away from joining band or doing things of that nature because that's not really the intent of the, the, both the film. However, it could come off that way. No. For the most part, it was pretty much fine. Uh, yes, they pushed us, but they pushed us to be better than what we thought, than what we, thought we could be. Uh, at, least, at least in high school. In college, they kind of pushed us, but it was more of a tedious kind of a thing. Um, they wanted us to prove that we were actually practicing. Huh. Um, so <laughs> it, that also kind of caused some, because we got a new band director, kind of caused some controversy among the students, more or less, that they were just like, this is dumb. But anyways, yeah. O overall, yeah, pretty much a positive experience. Had nothing like what this movie has to offer. I, my closest experience to any of this stuff, yes, I did play an instrument for a number of years, but I was also in choir for a number of years and for whatever reason i will be careful what i say i'll limit what i say but throughout the years in you know various schools uh my choir teachers have been harsh now not all of them okay some of them haven't been that way but there has been times and experiences where i could relate to 
uh, what Miles Teller was experiencing. Even so far as I saw my choir teacher, one of them, get so angry she did uh, physically assault a student. She uh, hit them. and Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, so I don't know what it is, uh, but I'm just saying I've been in those experiences where we are just yelled at, berated, but it's always in the vein of, I just care for you and want you to do better, and the way you're going to do that is by being very angry at you and yeah. stressing you And out. here's kind of the thing I've noticed with music teachers just kind of in general from my own experience. I don't know if this is universal, but from what I've experienced, music teachers can be the coolest people ever until you get on their bad side. Then they kind of can go a little bit overboard. Oh, yeah. From what I've experienced, that seems to be the case. That isn't necessarily a good or bad thing. That's just what I've seen. Yeah, and that's my that's been my experience as well. I was never on their bad side, so they were always nice to me. In a group setting, though, it was quite harsh. And, yep, don't get on their bad side. And also, there's a scene where we see JK being really sweet to a little girl. So outside of the setting, they're super sweet. But then when you get backstage... Uh, they're right at your throat and not all of them hashtag not all music teachers okay or whatever you want to say i'm just saying right. i can right. relate i don't know what it is about music that seems to make people just i don't know just be fiery passionate about it and put them on edge and go a little overboard sometimes i don't know but alan are we ready to give them the plot I am. I am very ready. Are you ready? I am definitely ready. All right. Well, as usual, uh, spoilers ahead from this point on. Um, I mean, at this point, uh, if you haven't seen it, you really should because it's quite an interesting experience to see at the very least. Uh, I think now, as per typical of what we usually say, you can always pause it and come back to it later. Uh, you can get this almost anywhere. This is pretty accessible uh, I, I think I bought my Blu-ray copy at Best Buy, and I wouldn't doubt that it's still there. If not, you can get it off iTunes, Amazon Video. You can get it all over the place. It's not as uh, hard to find as Guy and Madeline on a park bench. So, all right, the summary. Andrew Neiman is a freshman is a freshman alternate drummer in the JV, more or less, Nassau band attending Schaefer Music Conservatory. After he was born, his mom ran out on them, and leaving just Neiman and his father whose regular father-son activity is to watch movies at the theater, buy popcorn, and mix them in with raisinets. One day while Neiman is practicing, Terrence Flesher, the teacher of the acclaimed studio band, walks in and rudely, over, and rudely takes over his practice session, asking him to play rudiments, and, but most notably, his, to see his double-time swing, before storming out. You see, the studio band here at Schaefer, Schaefer is considered to be one of the best jazz bands in the country, and getting in, let alone Fletcher noticing you, is a pretty big deal. And as he mentions in this opening scene, he's looking for new players. This encounter with Fletcher inspires Neiman to begin practicing a little bit harder in hopes of getting in. It's made known to us that Neiman really isn't that great of a player, at least not compared to anybody else here in any jazz band necessarily. Well, later, Fletcher barges into the Nassau band while they're practicing and asks to hear players. He gets to Neiman and sees that he's clearly been practicing. And so Fletcher tells him 6 a.m. sharp in, I think it was room B-15. Uh, the practice with the studio band. So this gives Neiman the opportunity, or no, this gives him the confidence to ask out the girl at the concession stand at the theater. 
But the next day, his confidence kind of overtakes him, and he wakes up at 6 a.m. when he's supposed to be there at 6 a.m., and he is he runs there, and it's just a little bit late. But when he gets there, no one is really has shown up yet and he walks out and checks the schedule and they're not supposed to be there till 9 a.m. And so he waits around and eventually everyone starts rolling in. Um, however, once Fletcher gets in, it's kind of revealed that he is absolutely ruthless and seemingly masochistic. On the first day, he hears a player out of tune and kicks out the wrong man just to prove that he didn't know that he was out of tune, which is really bad. Which, we come to find out, he wasn't out of tune, it was some other guy. Once Neiman gets on the drums, his confidence overtakes him once again, and he is pressed by Fletcher until he brings until he begins slapping him, making fun of him for not being able to read music. Neiman runs home crying and broken, but this only serves to keep him to keep getting better, even ignoring the phone call from his father. The studio band later has a performance with the people from Lincoln Center watching, which is considered to be one of the best, basically the best of the best. If they if Lincoln Center notices him, then you're going to be extremely successful with him. But things kind of go awry when Neiman dis- misplaces the music folder that he shares with Tanner, one, the lead drummer of the studio band. Well, they tell Fletcher this, and Fletcher more or less gives it to Neiman because Neiman says, I know these charts by heart. I have memorized them. Well, Neiman proves himself at this uh, at this performance and he and goes to show that he has been pra- not only practicing but maybe even be better than Tanner is in terms of memorizing music. So Fletcher gives him the basically the lead role. He gives him the lead drumming uh, spot and moves Tanner down to alternate, which kind of fires up Tanner at, at the time. Neiman then heads home to find his family don't exactly have the same view of success as he does. And Neiman kind of, and Neiman says, I'd rather die drunk and high under a bridge and everyone remember me, remember me than live a long life to 90 and no one rem- remember my name. Later in practice, Fletcher has another test for Neiman. He brings in Connolly, the lead drummer of the Nassau band, and has already given him the charts for a piece of music that he wants to test Neiman on, who he has never seen this music at, all, at ever. Well, this, he, get, he gives Connolly the part, and this leads Neiman to break up with his girlfriend as he explains that I'm going to be thinking about drumming a lot, and you'll just be, you'll just be holding me back, which causes, this causes him to practice even harder. Back at practice, it is revealed that Sean Casey, one of Fletcher's older students, died in a car accident. But Zero, and then they try to play the piece that, that, they've been, that uh, Fletcher had given them previously, and turns out that none of, the dr- none of the three drummers that are there can really play it to his view of perfection. And so they spend all night up until about 2, 3 a.m. practicing this piece, waiting for somebody to get it right. Eventually, Neiman kind of breaks through. And us, and after uh, and after Fletcher antagonizes him, takes a cowbell, tries to get him off of time to slow him down, throws a tom drum, even kicks over a, new, new, a music stand, Neiman doesn't back down and is able to keep in time and go faster, just like what uh, what Fletcher always wanted which gives Neiman the lead part in this song. Well, <sighs> tragedy strikes. Upon going to Denauen, which is where this performance is at, uh, the bus breaks down, and Neiman has to get a rental car, but then forgets his sticks in the rental car shop, which he has to drive back to get his sticks, which at that point almost loses the part to Connolly, but he explains that I'll be back and I'm going to have that part because it's mine, because he earned it. Well, upon returning to Dunallen, 
he runs into a semi and essentially makes his way away from the crash into Denau and into the music, into the performance and kind of botches it. And earlier, Fletcher had told him, yeah, if you make one mistake, you're out. You're basically going to go back to Nassau or you're going to be dismissed. You're going to be dropped or you're going to drop out. Well, he botches the performance and that's basically it. He is released from Schaefer, he ends up, his dad ends up calling a psychiatrist or an investigator, and she says that, yeah, Sean Casey didn't die in a car crash, he hung himself, because he was so emotionally disturbed after what happened with him and his experience with Fletcher, that it caused him to do so. And they want to, and him and the Casey family want to bring some people who have experienced Fletcher and kind of get him out of this lead role as a, as a jazz teacher. Neiman initially uh, shrugs it off, but then does comply. And we skip to summer where he's working a day job and still watches movies with his dad only in his apartment now. And everything seems to be pretty much all right, except that he sees Fletcher playing in a bar and they have a conversation. And essentially Fletcher says that uh, his whole reason for doing what he did at Schaefer was to find the next uh, the next Buddy Rich, more or less. He wanted to push his students so far that those who were the best would come out being the best. Now, he was, and he also says that nobody else really does this, which is why I feel like I needed to do it, which is part of the reason why he was let go of Schaefer. Well, as they were walking out of the bar, he says, and even, hey, I'm starting up this band for JVC, which is like a jazz convention. Um, and he says, I'd like you to join as a drummer because nobody else is really cutting it. So Neiman complies. He says, yeah, sure. Okay, I'll do it. And there, he says that they're just going to play old old, uh, old stuff like Caravan and whatnot. So Neiman says, yes. And he agrees. Well, upon getting on stage before playing the first piece, Fletcher goes up to Neiman and says, you think I'm stupid? I know it was you who told on me. Right. And so that and he throws a bone and says... We're going to play a new piece, Upswinging, which Neiman has never heard of before. And so Neiman has to try and adapt to the song that he does not have the charts for and has never heard in his entire life and botches that as well. He goes to walk off stage after uh, after Fletcher says, yeah, I guess you don't got it. But then gains the confidence once more when looking at his dad and his old life that he would be returning to if he walked off stage. And he goes up and interrupts Fletcher during the middle of his speech and essentially takes command of the band and says the bass player, I'll cue you. Fletcher adapts to this and the band begins playing Caravan. But once the song ends and the lights go down, Neiman continues playing and goes absolutely nuts on the drums. Fletcher notices what is happening and takes the opportunity to be a part of it. He takes Neiman back to where they first met, back when beginning with the drums. And as it, as it begins to gradually gets faster. And after so long, just kind of lets them fly, stepping briefly to glance at each other as, ne- as Fletcher smiles in admiration, causing Neiman to do the same out of joy. Neiman, Neiman tears apart the drums one last time as, as Fletcher introduces the crowd to the birth of one of the greats to a heart, as we have a hard cut to the credits. <laughs> as you can see, this is, well, as you can see, this is not the light, whimsical, airy, fantastical guy in Madeline on a park bench. That was that take on music and song in people's lives. This is the gritty, harsh reality of the other side of music, how it can be this all-consuming, 
entity where you're just so obsessed with it, you're obsessed with becoming great, and how will people push each other to achieve that greatness, and it gets heavy, it's harsh, as you could tell from Alan's plot summary. Yeah, that's why the first time I watched it, I was uh, essentially having anxiety attacks (laughs) throughout the movie. (laughs) Not really, but uh, it was getting close, and especially towards the end there, where I, with the final twist, which is a great twist, and I was like, no, what? Uh, Yeah, and I've seen this six times. This movie never gets old, and there are still scenes... One in particular uh, that are still just as intense oh, yeah. the first from when I watched it the first day to watching it again at that time. There are still scenes in here that are insanely intense and really interesting that he was that Chazelle was able to do that with jazz music with really I guess really just any kind of music that solely focused on that subject is that he's able to make it as intense as he as it as it is. And some people have even classified this movie not as really like a musical or a drama per se, but more of a psychological thriller. And at one point, the script, I think it was one of the first drafts, it was written as a psychological thriller. But that, was cor- that of course, has changed a little bit, and it takes on more of a dramatic role than it does a psychological thriller. But the pieces are still there from that first draft. That This is still, when you look at it from a macro level, still a psychological thriller, more or less. Yes, and before we go too far, I want to just clarify just a couple things because, as usual, Chazelle is not going to spoon-feed you anything. There really isn't any exposition in this movie. As far as I could tell, exposition as such where a character will be clearly talking to the audience just for their benefit to explain something, Whereas characters in the movie would clearly already know such a thing or just feels unnecessary and clunky to just start talking about this. It doesn't feel true to life. Chazelle doesn't do that, which does make the writing stand out from the rest. It's great. And I guess if you do have a more musical knowledge about certain things, then some of these things will make a tad more sense to you. But you don't have to know really anything, I would say about music to in, in order to enjoy this movie. But uh, just like a few of the things that I was wanting clarification on is Lincoln Center. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, well, okay. Lincoln Center, Schaefer Conservatory, they're all kind of made up for this movie. Oh. Basically, Lincoln Center is what is going to give you your big break, more or less. That I, From what I understand, it's kind of like a jazz, also another jazz conservatory. Uh, Schaefer is the best in the country. And Lincoln Center is the one that's going to give you your big break. That's the one that's going to make you, essentially give you a label deal or make you popular or whatever. Get you to play with the best and the best of the best here in the, in this world. And the studio band is, this, is and Schaefer is like one step under that. And he men- and Fletcher mentions that these people at Lincoln Center, they never forget. They Once they see you, they will always have in their mind what they thought of you since the beginning. And that's essentially what's going to drive your career. Uh, and it, so, yeah, that's basically what Lincoln Center is. There are a few things where it's just briefly touched upon uh, in a world where I've grown up knowing music and knowing these things. I kind of understood what Lincoln Center is by just Fletcher mentioning the fact that these people are from Lincoln Center. You'll, If you are lucky enough, they'll be watching you, that kind of a thing. I was like, OK, so obviously they're a pretty big, uh, pretty big thing for at least in music, at least music wise, because although we haven't exactly had 
people looking for players in competitions that we've gone to, uh, we have had like placements and things of that nature. So I just kind of picked up on it's like, okay, so that's what Lincoln Center okay. is. The other thing is yeah. there, are, there are multiple types of bands. Now, I've been aware of this, but I've never really understood it and what really the difference is. I, I mean, I understand from this big level, obviously, the difference, but there's there's jazz band, marching band, studio band. This movie focuses on studio band, I think. So, I mean, just can you like speak a little bit on like the different reasons for these different types of bands right so at least in college where i'm at uh, we actually have three technically three bands but i think two of them are more uh i guess actually four one's an orchestra so technically four uh so one's more or less uh one's called symphonic band one's called concert band then you've also got uh i forget the name of it but uh more or less, the J the JV band, the concert band, is the band that is meant more for players that, technically, is meant more for players that do better with easier songs uh, and can play in different times that are a bit more simpler. Symphonic band, uh, which is a bit, basically a step up. This is all in like high school and college and stuff. This is I don't go to a music school, but this is essentially the same thing. Uh, so a symphonic band is more of a band that's going to play more complex pieces. They aren't necessarily going to have strings, but they'll have different types of instruments than what you'd see in a smaller band like the concert band would. So with this, it's more or less just a step up in more complex music. Nassau is the first band. That one is the band that is a bit more simpler in their music. This is kind of brought up when, uh, when Fletcher comes in and looks at the music and looks at the music and kind of flips to it and goes, huh, cute. Uh, they're playing more simpler pieces versus when you go to the studio band, they're playing very complex, very quick and fast pieces. Uh, that And they're the ones that are going to get more awards than the Nassau band would in terms of ones that will uh, that are very popular or things of that nature. So essentially, it's just like a step up. The studio band is where you is where you really kind of want to strive for in terms of being in band because that one is the one that's going to push you and get you. It's going to be more successful for you to be in that bigger band than it would in the, the JV more or less band, which is Nassau on this movie. Okay, all right. Well, that makes sense. That clarifies it for me because I know he yeah. is starting out in a band, but then he moves to the studio band. But then I'm also aware of these other types of bands, so I'm like. See, I, I was never in band. I was always in orchestra, which maybe is a type of band, but there's a clear delineation in school. You're either in orchestra or then you're in band. And then it went, once you're in band, then you get to do all these fun things. And then you get to be in different levels of band, which may offer you different levels of prestige and different things. So I was never a part of that side of it. So, But this movie isn't so confusing where they're like, oh, you're in the symphonic ultra marching band. Right, yeah, and this movie just kind of simplifies okay. this idea. It's just like, okay, Nassau is like the JV more or less band. It's the lower band, and Neiman wants to, and really Neiman and really anybody else wants, should strive for studio band, which is the bigger, better, more complex right. band. That's that's what they they basically simplified to those the, those little those, those two rules. That's what they wanted to go for is uh, studio band. Uh, they're just like I said, more complex, harder pieces, gotcha. and things like that. Okay, so. Yeah. As soon as we jump into the movie, I am giddy with how well it is shot with, uh, we just start with this kind of static shot, but then it turns into a zoom 
and I can clearly tell Miles Teller isn't faking it. Yeah, he's actually been playing, I think, since he was wow. 15. Um, but not to like jazz. He never really did drumming for jazz groups. He always did it for, I think, rock bands, more or less. So doing this was kind of a new thing for him. He actually he had to practice, I think, for a few weeks uh, to get drumming down uh, to the way that jazz players play it because it's much different than it gotcha. is in a rock band. I'm going to tip my hand yeah. a little early. How was Miles Teller not nominated for the Oscar? I don't know. Uh, that's a great question. I remember asking that question after I first saw the movie. I'm asking the question once again. Mm-hmm. I, I should do remember you yeah, asking Yeah, and I'm too. asking it once again after seeing his entire performance. Okay, I clearly understand why J.K. Simmons won the Oscar. That is plainly yeah, obvious. Yeah, that was one of those where if he didn't get the Oscar, there would be mass confusion because <laughs> yeah. he yeah. deserves it. <laughs> Uh, cons- talking about mass confusion, we're gonna t- we're gonna talk about that with La La Land. Um, oh dear. But anyways, yeah, uh, his performances. I-, I feel like it gets better as the movie progresses because of his character arc changes, and I think that is right. a good thing that any actor and character should do. Is we really we're not sure what to think of them to begin with, but then as their character grows through the arc, then it it should just become better and we should become more um, drawn to their performance. And I would say that's the case with this. Now, with J.K. Simmons, he is magnetic with his performance and I'm immediately drawn to this very uh, individual that brings you in, but he is so scary. But just like how Andrew Neiman can't help but come back to him because there's just something about him, I think audiences were going to relate to that as well and i think jk simmons character will be remembered in history he is one of those villains you love to hate but you hate to love and i know one of the villains people brings up that's kind of similar to that i haven't seen the movie so i guess i really can't speak to it but everyone is says oh like nurse ratchet from one flew over the cuckoo's nest he, yeah yeah I he that would, I have seen that movie, so I can definitely, I can definitely, I, that is very true. Yeah. So I was very thinking, true. okay, he's going to be one of those characters. There's his performance will go down in history, and so will his character. Oh yeah, yeah. His if it hasn't already, I think this might be one of his best performances, if not his best performance, because yeah, he's scary. Even in this opening shot, there's just kind of this aura to him when he walks into the scene. And he just takes yeah. control of Neiman and his practicing and asks him to do his rudiments and asks him, asks him to show him his double time swing, which is a recurring theme that happens over and over again for him to show him this double time swing uh, in this movie. Yeah, he has this scary presence, which only becomes worse and more terrifying as the movie goes on. And we get to see how far he's going to push Neiman to his absolute limit and then even farther than that. Just because he wants to find the best player, he wants to craft one of the greats, which is something that is happens very rare, which this movie kind of points out. It's very interesting. It is, and now I will say this: his performance in this movie is pretty. It's changed since the short film uh, that this is all based off of. He's a he's not as menacing in the short film as he is here. Clearly, there's a step up in uh, quality just overall across the board from the short film to the feature length movie. Uh, and so that's definitely part of it. But yes, there is an energy and an aura to Fletcher as a character, which is 
terrifying. I also love his simple costume design, and he. Yep. I don't. I don't know if he's always bald, but he at least was bald for this movie, and I think it really worked for uh, his character. So very drawn to his costume design and character design oh, yeah. in general. Yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of funny because it also, of course, I mean, it matches his character, of course, uh, because he's very he's quite a black and white yeah. person. He is very simplistic, very minimalistic uh, kind of a guy. He only wears black t-shirt with black slacks and a black jacket with a black hat and or scarf, depending on what scene you're in. Yeah. That's all he wears, and that's really all he needs to wear to get across that. And his just his presence when he first walks in, when we first see him in the movie, you get the fact that this is a very tough man this is a very competitive person uh and just from seeing the first frame we get all of that and he only builds on that from then on yeah he is always in black which kind of sets him up as the villain and uh we also see i don't know if i can't really substantiate this i would really need to go back and watch it for this specific purpose but I do think it's interesting how color is used in this movie. It is, uh, I love the color in this movie. Um, lots of yellows, yes. um, dimly lit lights, blacks and yellows. It's it's so gorgeous. But we notice that uh, Andrew's character, he kind of is this really bright, cheery person. He's always smiling in the beginning, but his demeanor and mood uh, changes to he's more serious about his passion for drumming as the film continues. And he is seen kind of in just various colored t-shirts, never really anything bright. Although I will say the beginning of this film is brighter than it, it goes from bright to dark, then back to bright uh, about halfway through and then back to dark as well. And uh, we notice Andrew is all dressed in black in the very end, which might suggest that his character and, J.K. Simmons' character Fletcher have kind of uh, kind of formed into this understanding. They're very similar now. On the, they're on the same wavelength, whereas before they were on very different wavelengths. But that is what uh, Andrew was always striving towards. And then we see this uh, kind of simpatico nature with them, and you could even see that in kind of the blackness with how they're dressed. No, I'm not insinuating that uh, Andrew becomes the villain or something. But I think it just right. – none of this color design is by accident. Oh, absolutely not. There is a lot of – and even this opening, I think this is probably where it's most evident. A lot of green oh, in yeah. this movie. A lot of green, a lot of black. Those are the two colors that we see a lot, uh, especially when Neiman goes outside and this – over when the overture plays, we kind of get the opening um, after the first scene. There's, yeah, a lot of green, a lot of black. And I looked up. What these colors mean. Uh, so green is more or less for personal growth. Uh, you're going to kind of... It's more or less insinuating like grass or plant life. They're meant to show growth uh, personally. And so that's one of the big things for green, especially in this opening, especially in this opening. Uh, then black also stands for... I've got it right here. Black stands for like a meaning of transition uh, between innocence to into, into a sophistication. And at one point in the movie, when the three drummers are all kind of competing for this one spot, well, and I want to talk about that scene when we get to that part, especially on the color, uh, color portion, but Neiman's wearing black in that scene. And that's kind yeah. of where it really stands out that this is a moment yeah. of transition for him. This is essentially when he becomes 
he switches from just innocence from this regular guy in his regular life to becoming one of the greats and really pushing himself to get this great role, which is, once again, the colors help insinuate this. We also have brown and yellow, which are in the jazz practice room. We've got red worn by Connolly. We've got a green shirt worn by uh, Tanner, which I'll talk about that in a different setting as to what else green also means a bit later. But yeah, colors are a pretty big thing uh, in this movie. At least they are very subtle. They're subtle enough where uh, even if you don't notice them, it's not. It's just going to psychologically kind of help you out, uh, kind of give some leeway into this. But at the same time, yeah, without these colors, uh, it'd be missing something. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it does take a while for us to know these two main characters' names. We do learn Andrew's name a lot sooner than Fletcher's name. Maybe I'm wrong about that and I just missed it. But I kept putting in my notes, I just kept calling them by their real-life names until I found out their character names. Yeah, they. this is a pretty simple story, so they kind of leave the names out until they are needed in the script, more or less. Uh, yeah, Nima's name is said pretty early on. Fletcher's is uh, kind of mentioned once or twice. When I, I think he's mentioned maybe one time before he has the time, before he hangs with his dad, maybe. Uh, but yeah, other than that, it isn't really mentioned until about maybe halfway. Yeah, names are, especially with these two characters, you don't really need to know them. All you need to know is that this guy is going against this guy, and he's, and Fletcher, or the guy dressed in black, is going to push our main character. It's pretty simplistic that this is all you really need to know, at least in the beginning, and then names will become a thing later. We'll worry about that in a little bit later when it's okay. needed. I just wanted to make sure, because twice in my notes, I said... yeah. I don't know anyone's name yet. Do we know anyone's name? Not that it's particularly necessary, I guess. Although I will say names do humanize, of course. So that's why it is important probably for us that we know Andrew's name first so we can relate to him quicker. And then um, we only... I, I put it in my notes. The first time I found Fletcher's name was 51 minutes into the movie. And that is when he has a personal moment of getting a phone call where he's angry and immediately he is a little more humanized that way. And at least it's setting up his humanization where he will come in and start crying, which is a very shocking side to a hard man, but it does show he's multidimensional, especially when we see him interact with people like younger people outside of the band. I just found that very fascinating that Chazelle chose to slip in these names and uh, at least it stood out to me and how are we going to humanize these people and it's a smart move because we don't want to humanize Fletcher too quickly because we want to set him up as the villain that we're against before we can start to understand more about him right and a little fun fact with Fletcher's character and especially this scene when he reveals that Sean Casey died which is one of his students there is a deleted scene with uh, with Fletcher or uh, J.K. Simmons having, it's just him in his own apartment or his own house, whatever, and he puts on the record that is Sean Casey's song. It is just him, and he sits on the couch and listens and essentially begins crying. It was, an, it was a scene that they filmed, and they had, it was basically ready to be put in the movie, but then it was pulled because this is Neiman's movie. This isn't necessarily Fletcher's movie completely. Every scene that's in this movie involves Neiman in some way. It is his story. It's his journey. And so to have Fletcher, this scene with Fletcher, where he's crying in his own apartment, just didn't even fit the rest of the movie. So they took it out. But they edited it as a deleted scene. 
it's very interesting. They more or less make up for it when he shows the class John, Sean Casey's song a little bit later on. Uh, it's it's uh, made up there instead of having this one scene where we're just missing that. So yeah, that is an interesting tidbit that I found out uh, when I watched it, I think one, once or twice. They mentioned that some guy had talked about it and he mentioned the scene. So a little yeah, bit of fun that, that was definitely the right choice to leave that scene out because that would be the one and only time the movie would switch perspectives, which would probably be jarring. Right. Um, you're going through this whole movie with one perspective and then just for one brief scene to switch perspectives. And I did like that he had this moment of vulnerability in front of the whole class, but then we come to realize that it's right. maybe not completely genuine because of how he is presenting supposedly the truth and what is his outcome for doing this in front of the class we'll discuss it when we get to that scene but interesting choice um also okay here's something i also want to know is there such thing as a essentially a second string quarterback drummer if you get my reference in like football there's the first string quarterback second string and even third string if you're in the nfl maybe college i don't know Mm -hmm. but he we at one point we get essentially one main drummer and well what they would call a core drummer and two alternates at one point in the movie is i don't know that doesn't seem very common to me <laughs> yeah it's more common in jazz bands uh especially bigger ones that are in school like this uh yeah they all have alternates partly because they need people to actually turn the pages because both their yeah, hands are kind sense. of busy uh playing the drum uh, so yeah, this is a thing. Uh, it's something you don't necessarily see as much in many situations, at least not in what I've seen. But yes, this is a thing where we do have a we do a person, especially in bigger bands, where there is a person behind the drums, the alternate who will turn the pages uh, for the one who's playing the drums. I also noticed there's never more than one drummer. There's usually more than one of any other instruments, like the uh, brass instruments. But for the drummer, there's only one drummer, and if he is off by a bit, then it will compromise the integrity of the entire piece they're playing. Is is that right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, especially in jazz, because in jazz, the drums lead the beat of the piece. So if the drums are off by just a little bit, you can botch the entire song. That's kind of the reason why is if you go to like a jazz concert or like from a school or whatever, the director, at least I know from what I've seen personally, he'll begin the piece and he'll just walk off and let them play. And it's the drums that lead the rest of the the rest of the band. This is why drumming is the core is a core focus in this movie is because that's the most important aspect, more or less, to a jazz band. So yeah, if the drummer is off, there's only one. There can only, really should only ever be one unless you're gonna have. Uh, a cajon or something along those lines then you're gonna want to keep just one drummer on the drum set basically that's it you don't want anybody else and you need to make sure that you have it specific where you are not off by any amount because that will could screw up everything else in the piece so yes yeah that definitely makes sense and we finally learn what whiplash means because i had even forgotten from the first time i saw it it's the musical piece that they're going to play and one we hear frequently. I don't know if this is a real piece or not, or if this, or if Giselle just made it up for the movie. No. Okay. It is an actual piece that was written and they just use it for the movie. It's written by a guy named Hank, written by a guy named Hank Levy. And he's written other pieces too. Yeah. So yeah, this piece of whiplash is not made for this movie It's pulled from a different source. 
Gotta say, the editing in this movie is superb, especially in our real first musical scene where Andrew is trying to prove himself, the jazz band is playing together, how the scene is cut with the music flows so well, and but it's also not just the music, the editing is also in tune with the atmosphere of the room, the intensity, the uncertainty, it's blended so well together and we'll continually see this superb editing throughout the movie. It makes you, it makes me very surprised that this movie wasn't nominated for best editing. Oh, it was. It won best oh. editing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the, that was one of the three Oscars, yeah. It yeah, th- it's very interesting not only in terms of editing but also cinematography. I'm a little bit surprised that it did win best cinematography. Uh but I can also kind of see why. And especially this scene when Fletcher enters. The entire room, everyone stands up and they just kind of, they don't say a word. And this is for Neiman's first experience with Fletcher in the actual practice room with him leading the jazz band. And so once he enters at like, I think it's yeah 9 a.m. sharp, he walks right in. Uh, it's really menacing. And you can see with a camera that he has full control over this band because he just raises his hand and the camera gets an extreme close up on that hand and he just kind of twitches it back and forth three times. And then on the fourth time, the piece just begins. And once again, this is the piece Whiplash. And it just kind of is a whiplash, more or less, because it just begins and it's so fast. And it's this is what you would call swing jazz. It's very quick. And that's part of the reason why, part of the thing that kind of just goes to show that he has full control over everybody here. And once again, makes it very menacing because everyone is so scared of this man that once he enters the room, everyone just stops playing. They stop whatever they're doing, and they their full attention is on uh, is on Fletcher himself. And J.K. Simmons does such a wonderful job as a believable a musical conductor. I don't know if he has any musical background, but regardless, he is one hundred percent believable as how he you know does his hand as a conductor would do. How he makes me believe his ear is so in tune with everything he can pick out the slightest out of tune instrument or you're just lagging in the piece that's not my tempo so well done i mean i'm sure he had to research the part of it but he just becomes the role one of the best Right, right. And it is kind of funny because one of the things he mentions in this in one of his lines of dialogue is any moron can wave his hands and direct <laughs> music. That's not yes. the whole point. <laughs> the point is to push the, you know, the players, which is what yeah. he's doing. Yeah. So it is just really funny because, yeah, it is believable, even from a person who has had a lot of experience in band just in general. Uh, it is believable that he has been doing this for years upon years. And so, he, yeah, so in tune with the music that he once again, can pick out an auto-tune player out of just what I wouldn't even notice if I had watched this movie. Actually, I, I still don't notice that the region is an auto-tune player when he points out and starts going after what he consider Wentz or Elmer Fudd, more or less, is what he, or I guess is meant. Yeah. Uh, and going after what he nicknames as Elmer Fudd. And then, one, then a little bit later on in the scene when Neiman is uh, auto-tune, slowing, or sorry, not auto-tune, but slowing down or is, is dragging or is too fast. It's pretty crazy because, I mean, at least in that one, I can pick it up and I can understand, okay, uh, I know that he is fast or he is slow in that take or that uh, that recording. Uh, there are some times where, like, especially towards the end, it gets really close. And I'm just like, I maybe he is? I can't tell. Well, and then once Andrew gets off by a bit and he repeatedly can't meet Fletcher's standard, Fletcher begins to 
verbally berate him, he is oh, yeah. psychologically manipulative by being so nice to learn about uh, Andrew's background just to turn around and use that on him to uh, emotionally, you know, psychologically abuse him and verbally, physically, the whole nine yards, he brings it right to him. It's pretty harsh experience for his very first time. And ladies oh, and gentlemen, we have a villain. But I will say I'm surprised Andrew cries. I mean, I I guess we're just showing the character's vulnerability and how harsh, like Chazelle is hitting it home, how harsh of an experience this is. And maybe that's necessary in order to kind of inflate uh, these emotions on screen. Uh, I mean, Miles Teller screaming, I'm upset. I find it to be just a bit funny, though. I'm, it doesn't completely work for me. It's mostly just his line delivery and how he sounds. Well, think about what Fletcher says to him, because he also oh, says, no wonder mommy ran out on you. You know, no wonder your dad is what is where he's at and all this kind of stuff. And basically telling him he's not going to succeed. He gets him, he essentially breaks him down till he snaps and... To be, to be as somebody who has been not in this situation, but has been yelled at by a music teacher, it's not the greatest experience because he it's his first time there, and he is being yelled at for person and personal reasons, and having already seen Mets being kicked out of band, even though he wasn't out of tune. I can definitely see why he cries in this scene. It's incredibly emotionally draining, even by just watching it alone. So I can, it, I buy it. I can definitely see why he is the way that he is. Maybe even just from personal reasons alone, having that experience myself. It, it just escalates so quickly for me, going from he's smiling, and then he gets something thrown at him, and then he gets slapped, and then he gets hit, uh, verbally berated, and then he starts crying. It just escalates so fast i guess it right. just took me off guard that he starts crying and then he sits there and takes it i guess it shows that he really doesn't at this point know how to stand up for himself but later on we do see he's really not going to take anything he's going to actually give it right back to him right and uh so yeah i guess in that sense the character arc is well played out it's also a little hard for me it's been I don't know. It's coming up on about six years since I've been. We can assume Andrew could possibly be around 18 years old, maybe 19. So he's still a teenager. He's not an adult. I'm almost 24. So I guess it's hard for me to. It's been a while since I've been in that emotional state of interaction with people. So maybe it is true to real life. Right. But. And this is now I mentioned in the uh, summary. Or I guess, no, it would have been the, uh, no, it was the background info, that there is a scene that is basically taken, that is essentially the short film and put in the movie. This is that scene. This scene, uh, this basically this entire thing where uh, Neiman goes in and sits in practice room and everything comes in, and then this entire scene up until when he, right, I guess right until when he runs out, I think. This entire scene is the short film, more or less. This is the, gotcha. this is what the short film was based off of. They just took the scene where they filmed it with the short film and stuck it into the movie. And so this is what we have. This is Neiman's first experience with J.K. Simmons, uh, with Fletcher, um, basically Fletcher in control. That would definitely make a great short film. It would be riveting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a pretty good short film. It's not as great after you see the movie because the movie 
executes it a bit better. But for the time it was released, yeah, it was really good. But once again, the movie just does it, just takes that and improves upon it a lot compared to what Shazow had done for that short film. Yeah, and it's not. This isn't the first time we've reviewed a movie where this has come about. I know with Neil Blomkamp, he did a short film of District District Nine, essentially, and right. then it became District Nine. So that it does seem to be kind of common, especially for uh, kind of new directors starting out in the industry. Usually, a short film that they have done will garner them the, garner them some success and possibly even funding to in, enhance it to a feature length movie. Right. So in this next scene, uh, we kind of get the first glimpse that Neiman isn't exactly going to stay to the way that things are. Because he gets a call from his dad, and he kind of just looks at it. And he has, and he have different shots of the drums and Buddy Rich on the CD, things like that. And he's honestly wondering, should I even continue? Should I even go back? And he decides, I'm going to do it. And decides that he's going to practice some more and get much better. And ignores the call from his dad and tries to become even better than what he was before. He decides to take uh, Fletcher's criticisms and beratement and use it to his advantage, more or less, in the scene. Yes. It is. A re- I like this because it is a really quick, and you kind of understand where he's at, and then he just immediately decides, I'm going to do it. And without a second thought, just goes for it. Yeah, he goes so hard, it causes his hands to bleed, and we get this shot of him putting his hands in an ice bucket essentially and this is a well done scene because i can imagine the pain i can imagine uh this physical pain the raw source cracking with the skin exposed to the open air uh teller shows that very well on his face and it's also shot very well oh yeah absolutely they show off the drums magnificently in this movie oh especially there towards the end things get really really uh, they look great, especially in that final scene. We'll get to that point when we get there. I find it interesting at this point in the movie, I'm asking a question that uh, Andrew will verbally express later on in the movie. I said, I said, but is there a line that can be crossed? And at this point, I'm saying, yes, there is a line. I said, results shouldn't be achieved through abuse because then you have to ask what are the motivations do you really care for the student? Does the student really care about their ability? Or are they finding their value as a musician in another human being? Is the instructor just sick with control? So these are the questions I'm asking of the movie. I, I'm i not coming to any answers yet because we've, you know, we're just setting out, but I'm already asking these questions and I'm sure you're probably doing the same thing. Right. And I would even say that with this first date scene, another, another question arises and even kind of sets in the girlfriend's character in a very important role because in this scene, she doesn't exactly know what she wants to do. She's going to college, but not really for anything specific. She's just kind of going to college and she's working at the movie theater just to kind of get money, I guess, for her to pay for it. It's a very interesting scene because uh, our main character kind of shows that, well, I'm going to try and become kind of, he kind of mentions the fact that he, wants to become the best that's why he's going to Schaefer is because it's the best music school in the entire country where she's like I have no idea what I want to do and we come to find out a bit later that that's kind of one of his fears is that he's that she's not doing things that would consider her I guess really anything that she loves she doesn't really know what she wants and he kind of knows what he wants but is also kind of in the state where is it even worth 
trying to continue to pursue it. And when you meet this girl, they kind of have this, this, they kind of butt heads briefly where she doesn't really know. And he's concerned as to why she doesn't know. It's a very interesting scene. It kind of brings in this question and which kind of sets in her character as to is Andrew going to end up like her where she doesn't really know what he's going to do. He doesn't really have anything to do. He is going to go against what he will become in the, in the movie, which is a, basically a nobody to him. Yeah, I found that interesting. Nicole gets a little unnecessarily hostile about her Fordham choice. It's, I, I don't know, did you see it that way? Just with her inflection, with how she responds to him? I don't, yeah, I, I can see because I don't think he's making it personal. She takes it personally, though. I would, at first, when I first saw this movie, I did kind of think that. I'm just like, well, she's taking it way too far. But I kind of understand where she's coming from. Oh, I do too. Because... She doesn't know what she wants, and then she's being berated for not knowing what she wants. And she's just still trying to find herself, more or less. She doesn't really know what she's good at or what she wants to do just yet. Whereas Neiman, I think he has a pretty clear path as to some kind of passion that she has. And so she gets a bit defensive when he brings this up and and about school. Why did she choose that school if there's nothing there for her? Yeah, I don't believe in the first scene of their pizza date that he, she's berated about it. Now, later on, it's it's brought up much more, but yeah, yeah these yeah. subtle feelings are depicted uh, very well and kind of sets up their relationship through foreshadowing. But I don't I don't think it's very obvious, but it's still organic. Yeah, the, it's this is kind of one of those movies where a lot is hit. I think you even mentioned this. there's not really much exposition, at least not right. outwardly in this movie. This is kind of one of these examples where you kind of have to really pay attention to what he's saying and how she's perceiving it because she takes a little bit of an offense to it and gets pretty defensive. But by the end of the day, they kind of begin to find a middle ground uh, between the two of them, which is their parents uh, and how they criticize them and all, all sorts of stuff. So <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very interesting, very interesting date that they have. And this is the only time we see her, or I guess the last time we see her until he breaks up with her. And I do really like this next scene where they're at the very first competition and Neiman's mistake of leaving the other player's folder is actually what gets Neiman to be the core drummer. If anything else is not just that, but because he practices so hard, he knows so often he knows this piece by heart. Is it whiplash? Yes, it is whiplash. Okay. Yeah, he knows it by heart, and uh, th- this is a great scene because we're able to see how Fletcher's uh, mode of, I guess you could call it, teaching people, uh, how that affects others because this main drummer is immediately quite egotistical from the first scene we meet him, how he doesn't allow for any grace, and in this scene, he just is not physically violent, but he's just verbally violent and angry. How could you forget my folder? And I would say that's partially probably his own personality, but the just the direction of the band is to err on the side of anger when and just take these things so seriously that uh, you're just going to trash on another human being for a mistake. And I have a theory about this scene. It's never substantiated, but my theory is that uh, Fletcher is watching Neiman. He watches Neiman set down the folder, and then he picks up that folder, uh, Fletcher does, and watches how will they react and deal with this scene. That's my interpretation of it. 
yeah, there's a, I know there's a video on YouTube that YouTube that basically says whatever you, what you just said that it's probably Fletcher, and it would make the most sense that it would be Fletcher. Uh, we don't ever get an answer as to where this folder went to, and I really like that because it doesn't really matter where the folder went to. What matters is that the folder is lost, and that Neiman has to prove himself to Fletcher that he knows these charts. And I think, uh, especially in as I guess, I thinking in this scene, and then it's also kind of confirmed a little bit later uh, that Fletcher knows that ne or is at least testing Neiman. Uh, to see if he has been practicing, if he is, if he has this drive to get better, and this is one of his ways of, ways of testing him. And if watching it multiple times, you kind of see multiple moments where Fletcher will test Neiman both uh, in turn, both physically, like both. I guess uh, best way of putting it is outwardly expressing it, but also in the background. In this scene, taking the folder, seeing what happens, and it's yeah, this is one of those scenes where Fletcher is wanting to see if the motivation is there with uh, with our main character. Is it there? And if it is, then I'll continue to push him. I'll give him a reward, but I'll continue to push him even harder than ever before. And yeah, this scene, especially with uh, with Tanner, and he explains that I have a memory. It's a condition. It's a brain condition. I can't memorize without visual cues. And Fletcher could care less. He just tells him, well, you should know better or whatever. You shouldn't have lost a folder. It isn't, it isn't Neiman's responsibility. He Get, he is giving even a, even a chance here, which is so interesting. Yeah, I I've I was actually able to like Fletcher's character here for a little bit, and we'll we'll continue to talk about it. But maybe this is really the only scene where I can actually agree with him when he says that it's not Neiman's fault. This was your music, your responsibility. You should have known better. Fletcher is like life is not fair, okay? So don't act like it is. And uh that that's a really good moment and a good place. And he says, Demon, you can prove yourself here. And they end up winning first place. And I, I like how if you notice uh in the background when they're winning first place, uh I think I guess his name's Tanner, the other yeah. drummer. Yeah, he's, he's hanging one, his the one's head always just in green. Yeah. yeah, he's hanging his head in shame. If you notice, it's quite funny. That's funny. Yeah, this well, is and there, okay. There is actually one line I want to bring up just because it is just so funny. Uh, when so this kind of sets up the folder thing. Uh, Fletcher grabs one of the folders. I think it's from the base, and he says, "If I see one of these things lying around ever again, I will stop being so polite. Get the f out of my face yeah. before I effing demolish you." <laughs> And talks to the guy who's essentially saying, come on the stage, we're ready for you. It is yes. so funny. Oh, and then he calls him Mini-Me. Yeah, I can still effing see you, Mini-Me. Uh, yes. That's one of my favorite lines in this whole movie. I mean, this movie is filled with insults from Fletcher. Oh, and some of them are, some of them have like this quality where that's funny. But man, I feel bad for laughing at that. Oh, Because absolutely. it is just so, it is just written in such a way where it is both of those things. It's, it's interesting. It it really is. Well, we have this dinner scene that I think is very important, but you can miss it because it's so quick with how it's presented. I right. know I didn't really think much of it on my first viewing, but I found a little bit more to it on the second viewing. I don't know if this is friends or family, but I guess it really doesn't matter. We've got these very braggadocious parents talking about how their kids are division three stars and model UN leaders and their dad uh well neiman's dad has some kind of job and they're like oh yeah andrew how's your drumming going like yep. your little drumming like 
how is that going to do you anything? And then we have a talk about, uh, actually, it's a very, this part of the scene is very poignant, talking about um, friends and people remembering you. And I think this is when we see Andrew's true motivation is to make himself one of the greatest drummers. He doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if he has any friends or really any loved ones per se, anyone close to him. As long as he can become the greatest and people remember him, then that's his goal in life and that's what's necessary. And I don't agree with that. I think it's important to be passionate about what you're doing, but not at the cost of putting yourself first and kind of almost having this like narcissistic glory. So on the other hand, I can see what his, well, his family's friends are saying about it's important to have friends and to have loved ones and relationships. And he said, you know what? Never had any friends. I don't really care. And this is what shows us that Fletcher and Andrew are more similar than we first thought. Yeah, this is, there are some people who don't necessarily like this scene and I can kind of see why, but I also think it is quite important that this scene does exist because yeah, it kind of sets into the fact that Neiman's just like, yeah, okay, well, Here's the point. Nobody remember, nobody was really friends with, nobody here as alive at least was friends uh, with Charlie Parker, but everyone remembers him. That's the point I'm trying to make. And that his view, like you just said, is he would rather people remember him a thousand years down the road because uh, because of something he did versus only his friends realize and still remember him for what they did to him. It's a very interesting view uh, that Neiman has. And I kind of agree with you. I don't necessarily, that's not exactly how I live personally, but I can see why he wants that, that motivation or why he has that motivation, uh, because he wants to become the best. And there are, there are plenty of people like Einstein and people that are great that have done so much for humanity, even though this may not do as much as they did. Same time though, people remember them because of what they did. And that's kind of the point that Andrew's trying to make here is that that's what I want to strive for because then I'll at least be remembered uh, years down the road versus only having people that were close to me remember me instead of that kind of a thing. That's kind of the point he makes. And although I see it, I I personally don't personally don't live by that. Yes. What I think people will miss with this scene is at the actually the very end of the scene when uh, one of the the brothers that he has this kind of heated conversation with says something along the lines of, uh, you'll, you'll never get a call about this or that. And then he says, said, well, okay, I'm, I'm messing up the scene. I'm not sure if you can remember what, uh, it specifically said, but he's basically saying that, uh, one of the kids says, um, You'll never get a call about uh, this, and Andrew retorts, yeah, says the NFL or college football, and then his father uses that line back on his own son and says, oh yeah, and Lincoln Center. Basically, I'm sorry if that was confusing listeners, but basically his dad is saying, yeah, well, you're never going to play at Lincoln Center. You're never going to make anything of yourself either as far as your drumming goes. 
I don't think his dad really meant it. It came out of a place of anger because his son is being so incredibly rude to the others and putting them down. And I guess his father's instant reaction is to just demolish his son and put him down so hard. It's really bad. Really bad. Not a good dad move. Well, I would say that this is more or less just a view of society versus, at least society's view of success versus an individual's view of success, especially one who wants to get into jazz. Let's be honest, jazz is not very popular, uh, especially not in this society. And this movie kind of brings it up a little bit later in the movie with Fletcher and Miles Teller talking there in the bar. But yeah, this is kind of where this entire uh, conversation comes from is that everybody at the table view has a very societal view as to what success is. The brothers are, I think it's the brothers, they're going into football and Neiman says, yeah, good luck getting into the NFL. Uh, Neiman himself is going on for more personal reasons. He's going on to do uh, things that he, he's going to be the greatest drummer that there is, one of the greatest drummers that there that there is. It's extremely hard to get there, yes, but that's what his dream is to be, is to be one of those great players. And so his dad is, I wouldn't say that he's demolishing his son, but he's saying, but he's more passively saying, okay, but do you understand how hard it is to get into where you're dreaming of being at? Not necessarily to say that your your view of success is wrong, but that you're not going to be very successful if you haven't already heard from Lincoln Center yet, or if you haven't heard from him at all, or things of that nature. I don't think he's necessarily saying that you're absolutely completely wrong, uh, but he's more or less just saying that you need to look again at what a si- what success is. Whether or not the dad's right is a different topic, but I think the whole point of the scene is to point out that, well, society has a bit of a different view from success than maybe what should be considered success. I will say this is kind of the classic success story in a way of everybody saying, oh, there's no way you're going to make it. You can't do it. One in a million shot. And then he is the one in a million that does make it. I guess I personally just took this scene as shocking how um, he's saying to those friends, yeah, you're never going to get that call. And then his dad basically says, from what I understood – yeah, and you think you're going to get a call from Lincoln Center? I just was shocked at the timing and uh, insinuation of his uh, what he what he's saying to his son, and then right after that, Andrew just throws down his fork, walks up, and leaves. And then not long after that, we get Andrew breaking up with Nicole, and he is stone cold about it. It is so harsh and. Yeah. He, it's like he rehearsed it. He's very robotic about it. Doesn't even care for her feelings at all. I mean, no humanity whatsoever. And it, it's a, it's hard. It's a oh, hard yeah. scene. Yeah, it absolutely is. And he explains that I, he's like, the only thing I'm going to be thinking about right now from now on is drumming. And I think part of this is the, done out of spite where he wants to just kind of prove his dad wrong, that he can be, I guess his dad and his family, he can be successful uh, and that's, I think, definitely part of the reason. But at the same time, he wants to, if to pursue that, he has to get rid of absolutely everything that could go against his dream of being the best drummer of all time, which is to break off this relationship with, uh, with the girlfriend, more or less. And she says, "I never see you. I have, and you're going to, and you're thinking that I'm going to be pulling you back and trying to keep you to myself instead of letting you pursue what you love." And he goes, "Absolutely yes." And she goes, "Then we shouldn't have been dating in the first place." And then she leaves. Yeah, it's insanely harsh. 
because he, from what we understand, he never, after asking her out, he never really did too much after that. He was always so busy playing with the drums that he never took time out of his day to also enjoy his girlfriend that he, that they've been, I think for about a month or a few months at this point. I get, actually, no, it's, I think it's just a month. Yeah, it's insanely harsh. But at the same time, it kind of just goes to show that he's becoming, if not already, obsessed. Yes, his introversion is unhealthy. He is, I I would say he is idolizing drumming as this is his pursuit in life to the point of uh, he almost worships it as this uh just deity to appease and uh, just kind of become one with it is really unhealthy and at this point i can't root for the protagonist and i think this lends itself to this is a very postmodern movie where it's not just black and white it's not just good and evil it's this sense of yeah maybe these people are good in their own eyes but in reality, they're bad, but we can't definitely say they're bad because everybody's kind of good and bad. And there really isn't, I would say, kind of a black and white character per se in this movie because we see the dad as being supportive. But then in that scene we just talked about, he comes across as very unsupportive. And uh, we get we see Fletcher as being supportive, but we also see him as this major villain. And then we get Andrew being a villain to his girlfriend and to those around him, he is just becoming this, uh, I would say, even self-obsessed uh, person where he is just like, I want to be the greatest. I will be the best. So that lends itself to this postmodern thought of the movie. Right. And especially in this scene, uh, you can tell that it's, if it hasn't, once again already, it's very unhealthy for him. Uh, getting into, getting, becoming obsessed with drumming and all sorts of things it's getting to a point now where he can't it's i guess it maybe even is hard for him to enjoy life because he is so channeled into drumming and becoming what Fletcher views as success uh and what he views as being the best that it's cut off from his family a little bit it's cut off from his girlfriend it's now just him and Fletcher and that's what he wants and we'll come to find out just in a, a couple of scenes here where that gets him yeah he won't even call his dad back won't call anybody back. He isolates himself in uh, almost this Heath Ledger type way where we know Heath Ledger isolated himself in his hotel room just so he could earn the part. And we saw the tragic consequences of that. And uh, we learn in the next scene of Sean Casey's death. But it's weird because we learn, yes, Sean Casey did die. But how we learn he died is a lie at first. I find this scene to be fascinating because Fletcher comes out crying. He says, I just received a phone call that he died. But we see in a previous scene, not long before, even the night before, he had a phone call that made him incredibly upset. He said, now's not the time. But then he decides to come and lie to his students about the timing, about the nature of it, about – in his mind, he saw himself as Sean Casey's dear mentor and uh, how Sean Casey was this real big success story. But um, he – and this is what really confuses me because later on he says people get discouraged and those who get discouraged just can't hack it. It's not for them. So – 
is he saying that Sean Casey's suicide was his discouragement? He couldn't hack it. Fletcher doesn't really want to accept responsibility for that. And I, I would say Fletcher even undermines his own argument because clearly his response to Sean Casey's death does show there is kind of this line that can be crossed. There is some humanity within us all. We can't be these like robotic narcissists that become just these, you know, uh, Mozart level, you know, Beethoven musicians out of just pure will to power or whatever. Very complex how this all plays out. Yeah, and here's another interesting detail just to kind of throw into the fire. Uh, he mentions, I think, multiple times that uh, Joe Jones threw a symbol at, I think, Charlie Parker's head. That never happened. That is completely made up, uh, at least in t for Fletcher's character, which leads me to believe that perhaps he creates, situa or creates things in his mind to more or less uh, get become a lesson to be learned but not in the way that it was supposed to be learned. Yes, Joe Jones and Charlie Parker are both pretty uh, pretty stingy and very hard to work with and very serious about the craft, but it never got to a point where somebody threw a symbol at another person, and that's why Charlie Parker is the way that he wa was the way that he was. That's not the point. And the same thing with what you just said. He says that, yeah, Sean Casey died in a car crash, and we come to find out a bit later in the, in the next couple of scenes that no, that's not exactly true. He committed suicide. He hung himself because of Fletcher. And I think Fletcher here is more or less just saying, uh, oh, I think what he's getting at here is that it's not that the reality, I think he's, I think he knows the reality, but doesn't, but decides not to give that out in the sake of maybe a, not making himself look bad or a number of different reasons for not exactly giving the truth. It could be that that's what he sees. It's not that it was a car crash, or maybe it's even symbolic of something else that was a car crash that is more of an emotional state than it is uh, one that actually, something like a physical state where that actually happened to him. He doesn't necessarily take things, now, at least from what we understand, from what actually happened, instead takes it and morphs it into something that isn't exactly true. Well, and I would even say this shows he doesn't even believe his own survival of the fittest ethic of essentially kill or be killed. You, I'm going to pit you all against each other, you three drummers. I'm going to play favorites psychologically. I'm going to push you beyond your limits almost mentally because the body begins to just break down, not just physically um, with their bloody hands and stuff, but mentally as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he says, oh, they were just discouraged and uh, very survival of the fittest ethic here. But then it seems like he doesn't believe that by creating a uh, fantasy about Sean Casey's death where it wasn't Sean Casey's doing. It was this external force. It was an accident. Um, nothing could have prevented it. It definitely wasn't his fault. He had just no control over cars crashing, Right. although it's quite telling that. Um, Andrew gets in a car crash. Right. Yeah, but later in this movie, he does. So I, I think that does go to show you that um, he doesn't completely believe his own thought process because it does have real-world consequences. Now, whether he truly cares about that or and whether he just blows it off eventually and shows yeah 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 i was right this does work i did find a student where i can 
push him so hard that he does become great and he's not just going to be you know kill himself or this or that it's once again it's so complex that I feel like we we might almost need a bit more understanding of what's going on with these people's thoughts and feelings right and now I do want to talk about the scene with the three drummers trying to more or less fighting to get the lead or trying to get this piece right with Fletcher because this is the scene I mentioned this earlier this is the scene where after this finished I had to pause it and take a break because yeah. this scene might be one of my favorite scenes just of all time because it is so intense and it gets it takes what Fletcher has already built up himself to be so menacing and cranks it up to 12 because it was already at 11 and this scene is whew it's heavy and it's really, really intense. And that's one thing I, uh, one, I think I mentioned this earlier. I applaud uh, Chazelle for doing this is that he made these scenes somehow intense. You wouldn't oh, think yeah. that jazz would do this, but somehow it does. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the exhaustion, stress on the muscles, it's tangible. Oh, I can yeah. feel how just physically and mentally worn they are. It's a really well done scene by Chazelle. Uh, teller jk simmons and i would even say the director of photography how he shot the scene oh yeah and uh, the best part i would say of this whole movie might be when nebling gets on the drum gets on the set for the last time uh, in the scene and uh teller or no uh jk simmons just kind of like squats and looks at him and goes don't slow down and then yeah. he just keeps going and going, and then he goes pick it up, you know. And then he grabs the cowbell and starts and starts whacking it in his face to then in the in a temple that's way off to try yeah. and slow him down. Yeah. Throws the cowbell, takes the tom drum, throws it behind him. It's a great kicks team. over the music stand, and then keeps yelling at him. Keeps yelling at him to keep going, keep going, keep playing. And then finally, the release. Where he's just like, "You are in the part, Neiman." It's oh, it's one of the few times in this movie where we actually feel like. Neiman got is successful in what he set out to do, and not just something that he's always trying to play up to, trying to play up to Fletcher and always trying to appease him. He it feels like okay, we finally got what he wanted for once. Very few times in this movie that, that actually happens, right? And that success is swiftly taken away from him when right. he is so so focused on. I don't know. I'm not sure if he's complete. It's probably a bit of both. He's so focused on pleasing Fletcher, but also he's so focused on just doing so great that he just forgets the essentials for actually performing the piece. And uh, it was a nice choice to have these like really quick drums during this intense scene because it doesn't just lend to the intensity, but it audibly shows the thoughts in his head are so quick they're so scattered he uh, can't even think straight right yeah and this scene when him and Fletcher go head to head after he rides with no sticks is one of probably the probably the scene where I think actually is the scene where uh J.K. Simmons throws out his worst insults and then just rips him to shreds but Miles Teller doesn't really take that he just throws it right back in his face and things just keep escalating and escalating until something breaks and he says fine I will be on your stage and I will be playing that piece because that's a piece that he played to earn in the previous scene and it's going to be taken from him. And he can't stand for that because he worked so hard to get it. And uh, Fletcher is getting getting to the point where he's 
really ready to give it away to somebody else to test him again to see how far he will go. And he goes so far that he gets in a car wreck and then just walks away and goes to perform and almost passes out by doing so. Yeah, I found this scene to be insane when I first saw it, especially the car crash. I was My jaw was dropped. I, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Right. Um, I do, it, I think it really showcases the disturbing nature of when you make music this important, just playing music, when you make it this important in your life, you are willing to character assassinate anyone willing to get in your way. You, right. The other drummers, he's going to cuss them out. He's going to cuss out Fletcher. And Fletcher is like, what did you just say to me? And he is like, you heard me. <laughs> and he just, I, I don't think this is something that should be imitated. I don't think music should be this important that we're willing to like destroy other people for it. And uh, I think it's particularly telling though that he is willing to destroy other people. He has nearly destroyed himself. Yeah. He takes it so far that if the previous scene wasn't already enough, uh, he takes it so far that he risks his own life just so he can play that one part, which to some who don't, to some it may seem rather silly, but he worked so hard, literally from the beginning of the movie to this point to get just this one thing, even though it's seemingly just one piece, he can't not let himself play it because he's worked so hard to do this. And this is maybe his one break for Lincoln Center. We don't really know, but all we know is that Lincoln Center is going to be there. And once again, as Fletcher says, they never forget what happens. And Miles Teller tackles J.K. Simmons on stage. This is the scene when he broke a couple ribs uh, doing this scene when he tackled him. Uh, yeah, he broke a couple ribs here. And one, one of the things that was mentioned in the, in the background info. Okay, I'm going to have to take issue with this, probably this entire scene. I understand the storyteller is purposefully making this a bit over the top to show his dedication is extremely unhealthy and to the point where he comes bloodied on stage. Nobody's even going to stop them. Well, first of all, he's able to walk away from a car crash seemingly okay with no seatbelt. His car is flipped, and I don't think it was at very high speeds, but nevertheless... He doesn't seem to have any real physical consequences to uh, what just happened to him. Fletcher sees him super bloodied. Go ahead and play. And he tackles him on stage. He gets kicked out of school for doing so. The school is not going to launch an internal investigation as to why this happened. It requires an outside some type of counselor in order to essentially get Fletcher fired all of this seems almost fantastical. It almost doesn't seem real. Maybe a more grounded approach would have been he doesn't show up at the uh, concert because of his condition. We get a shot of Simmons wondering why that is. He comes to visit him in the hospital, and even when he's in the hospital, he insults him. He possibly brings up Sean Casey being in a car accident and uh, just continues to insult him and then we see Andrew have to um, kind of rehabilitate himself to become a drummer once again that probably would have taken the movie a different direction but I don't think that would have been a bad direction I don't know how you feel about this scene but to me it all feels too unreal for a movie that's grounded in reality I just can't really buy all of this Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess I can see where you're getting at, but I, I feel like going in that direction that you were talking about completely would completely dehumanize what little humanity Fletcher has. Because 
even he is surprised that Neiman made it on stage and it's in such a condition. He doesn't know what happened, but he that's all he knows is that something happened. We don't know what, or he doesn't know what, I guess. Uh, I can I can buy this scene because Fletcher promised him this part and he has gotten into his head that this is my part. I earned this because the, he's worked this entire movie to get up to this point because this is the part that he practiced so hard for and he's getting taken away from him. And so I can see that, I can see why he would tackle him. And I, I although it is interesting that there isn't, an investigation launched by the school but at the same time they we don't really know what happened they could have been they they were talking with the KCs who did launch an investigation uh to, so that way this doesn't happen to anybody else there's a lot we don't really know uh there's a lot that we really don't i guess don't really need to know the only thing that we really need to know is that he's going to testify against Fletcher and that's what gets Fletcher also kicked out of Schaefer and he is off on his own just as much as Neiman is and of course, Neiman uh, quits the drums for pretty much a year. We jump right. to, I believe it began in the fall. Now we jump to the next summer. He doesn't even seem to have any interest in jazz music anymore, but he seems to be kind of a boring person now. He has no friends. He just kind of aimlessly ambles down the street with this, this you know, almost dopey smile on his face and whatnot. Until one night, as it seems fate would have it, Fletcher and Andrew are brought back together once again. And they kind of have this interesting conversation. To me, it almost feels like Andrew has Stockholm Syndrome, where he loves his captor. And it almost seems to be uh, kind of how an abusive relationship works, how Let's say the man abuses the woman. The woman says, I'm going to leave you, but she can't help but come back to him and make excuses for their relationship. So I do find the scene to be awkward and hard to understand. And I just, I mean, I can't really go along with it, how he is just so drawn to Fletcher, even though Fletcher was so abusive to him. He still wants to be around him, even though they have this... uh, just a step below a restraining order. Uh, there's no legal action involved between the two, but it does feel like they're not supposed to be together, but they can't help it. I mean, I, I guess I can see that. I would agree with you that there is some kind of Stockholm Syndrome going on here. I mean, it's not really to an a, a extreme degree like a lot of this movie is, but it is definitely there. And I would say that this is more of incentive for Andrew to find out why he did what he did because he does ask him questions like why did you do that what isn't there a line and I think that this conversation they have is a great conversation and even a kind of a scary conversation because I would even say that Fletcher brings up a pretty scary quote where he says that yeah there are no two words in the English in the English language more harmful than good job in some sense I think that he's right because Saying that's good enough is also kind of an incentive to you don't need to do anymore. But for Fletcher, he's just like, no, good good job is insinuating that you don't have to do anymore, that what you've done is perfect. That should never be the case. And he says that you should always push yourself to do much better, more be- to do more good than you think you to do more than what you think you can do. I think what's happening is is that our main character, Miles Teller, is just curious as to why this happened in the first place. 
and that and how is Fletcher still in his how can Fletcher still be playing jazz in a place like this when I would assume it would have been spread around that something happened with Fletcher but who knows I found this conversation to be very needed and very interesting because we finally get to see Fletcher's view as to how he directs music and why he directs music once again it's not necessarily anything that's presented as a good thing but we at least get a reason for it yes we do get a reason for it and i had quite a bit to say about this scene because the way he presents it i can agree with what he's saying but there's more to just than what he's saying because we have a lot of uh, background knowledge to we've seen what he does because he presents it in such this innocuous way as well, I've been doing it for your own good this whole time. Sorry if it was, you know, you took it as harsh, but that's because you're weak, you know, and I want to make you strong. And because he says, I want to push people beyond what's expected of them. Otherwise, we're depriving the world of the next Louis Armstrong or Charlie Parker. And Teller says, um, but is there a line? And uh, Fletcher replies, no, because the next Charlie Parker wouldn't be discouraged. And, um, and he also says there are no more, like you said, no more dangerous words than good job. And I think this is kind of his attack on our current generation of the, just the participation trophy, you know, which makes everybody mediocre that way. Nobody's a winner. Everybody is on the same level and everything is fair. And as we know, uh, he doesn't believe in fairness and neither do I, but, uh, he gets into he 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 does he seems to excuse his methods and i said coming back to what i said about intentions i understand teachers are hard on you because they know you can do better and my professor said that to my face and i appreciated that he said i know you can do better that's why i hold you to a higher standard than the other students that's why your paper was graded more harshly and he said, because I know you can do better. I want to see you do better. And I appreciate, I appreciated that a lot. Now, he, he wasn't saying, I know you can do better. And, um, that's like pretty much your only purpose in life. Um, and I, I just couldn't help but think of, um, you know, the verse in Matthew when Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And that kind of seems to be what this is like, okay, but what's the profit if you're at the top of the world, you don't have anyone to share it with, and you don't thank the creator who endowed you with these skills. It's not like you're just a self-created man who is able to just do anything on their own. And also when they basically say, no, there is no line. I don't believe this. It, uh, it doesn't matter what other people think or how they treat you on certain things. But if you teach them that playing is all there is in life, then you're setting them up for an unfulfilling life. Yeah, I, that's definitely what Fletcher is saying. And I would even say that the movie necessarily says that this is good or bad. I would even say it leans more towards this is a bad way to view how you be the best, more or less. Because we've come to find out that Charlie Parker lived off of Fletcher's rules, and now we know where that got him. Luckily, our main character was spared from having to go through this because the parents, or not Charlie Parker, but sorry, uh, Sean Casey, 
the parents from Sean Casey were able to bring Fletcher down before he was able to do it to anybody else. And as we just saw, our main character was kind of headed down that road. And luckily he was spared from all this. And then this conversation, at least we get a reason as to why Fletcher thinks this. He's, his view is very skewed. His reality is not necessarily set in what is real, but things that go through his mind then are kind of skewed into this way that, as we mentioned earlier, isn't exactly what actually happened. Charlie Park or Sean Casey didn't die in a car wreck. He committed suicide. He hung himself. Joe Jones didn't throw the symbol that was completely skewed. That didn't actually happen. It's a very interesting way of, I mean, it's, it's his view. He's definitely the villain and his view is all, the villain of the, this view of the villain is most likely always going to be very skewed from what should actually happen. And that causes both the, the, the hero and the villain to butt heads and then out of that comes something that is going to work, more or less. This lesson that they, more, more, more hero than, than villain, learns that this is the way, this is the better way of this lesson that is going to be taught. It's very interesting that, uh, it, it, to me, there are things about Fletcher's character that I think are kind of actually true. The good job thing is something that, is a rather scary line because it is kind of true in a lot of in a lot of situations that you shouldn't just say good job because that just like I said earlier insinuates that you did good enough and you don't need to do any more. But at the same time, the way that he goes about this is not ethically sound. He is the one who will continually bring down people. And even here we see that our main character gets discouraged and yet in the end we get there Maybe he, he kind of becomes the best player, which is interesting that his view was shown to him that this is not necessarily true. What you were doing or you're teaching is not necessarily correct. Well, I wish the movie was a little more clear on that because I feel like the pushback that Andrew gives Fletcher, Fletcher re rebuts and then uh, Andrew basically says, well, I guess you're right. And then we don't really see any strong opposing view to I'm able to achieve this without those methods because we see him say, yes, I'll play with you. And then he says, look what I've like, look what I can do. I'm, you know, you're not going to shut me down here. You're not going to scare me off. He says, I'm still going to do it. And then he's basically like, yeah, yeah, keep going. Um, in a way, he's basically saying good job. But I just feel like, um, and we can break down this whole thing a little bit more, but these are just kind of my initial overview thoughts. I just feel like it's too ambiguous and um, Andrew doesn't really get any major consequences out of this. He tries to get back with Nicole, doesn't give her an apology, and she said, I have a boyfriend. He's like, oh, okay. So he's kind of bummed about that, but he still, but he still goes along with the music anyway, and he seems completely fine being the best at the top of the world by himself. Right. Well, okay. The view of this movie is, when it comes to success is more of a personal thing. It's This view of success is not necessarily to say, yes, you need somebody to show you kind of what the greats, how they became the greats, or you need a, or at least somebody to show you that you need to push yourself beyond what you think you're capable of, which is what Fletcher does. But because Fletcher did it in such an unethical way, this caused their main character to go into this pit of discouragement, which Fletcher even says himself 
that no good player that is going to be the next Charlie Parker is actually is ever going to go through that kind of a stage where they are discouraged. And our main character kind of does that. He gives up drumming for uh, about uh, at least a few months before picking it back up again to play with Fletcher. And so in this scene, he becomes what he was afraid of in the beginning, which was he is what his girlfriend was at the time. He doesn't exactly know what he wants to do. And he... Oh, and ends up taking over that that role, which he clearly defined in the first date that that's not what he wants to become. He wants to have some kind of drive that makes him happy. He wants to do something that he feels is successful. And so in this final scene, when he does essentially show off Fletcher and does his own thing, it's more or less, it's not that he's appealing to what Fletcher has been teaching him, but more of he's defining what being the best is. The being the best is what more or less, is success for him himself if and showing that he can control or he wants to control uh, what he views as success, which is why he plays the drums and why he has Fletcher just kind of bring him down back to where they began, but then just lets him fly, lets him do his own thing because he's become the greatest player in the world or one of the greats at least by maybe even his own means. We don't really ever give get a pure answer as to what that if, as to if that's true or not but what it does definitely insinuate is that even though Neiman did went through all this this entire movie to do so many things and had to go through what Fletcher had uh been throwing upon him he becomes the best no matter what but not because of Fletcher necessarily in the end but more by success by what he was able to do because he has the drive and the will and the talent to do so yeah, and I would say that you're right. I think the movie, I, I guess the movie is kind of clearly trying to say if he still played by Fletcher's rules, then he would have walked off stage and went home, but he didn't. He interrupts Fletcher while doing it. Love that scene. I love right. when right. Fletcher, his uh, symbol goes down, Fletcher twists it back up. I got chills. He takes control. He proves himself. He says, this is what I can do. It's it's an amazing scene. It's an amazing finale all around. I have no complaints with it whatsoever. How it's edited, shot, uh, the intensity of it, the flow of it, how uh, Fletcher and Fletcher comes to respect Neiman. But it's not like Neiman seems to completely. Uh, he like you said. He, I guess he's really not doing it just to gain his respect. He's really doing it for himself. But I. Once again, I'm going to have to say just doing this for yourself seems to be problematic because, once again, it's lonely at the top, especially when you're viewing it all from almost this narcissistic point of view of, I'm able to achieve this on my own. I'm not going to give any credit to um, God or a creator. And and it's okay that I don't have anybody there with me. As long as people remember me, that is all I want is to be remembered for being so great. And it's interesting because the Oscar uh, best picture of the year, Amadeus, um, is about music and greatness and using these gifts and skills. Uh, and it's very interesting how it, how it uses that for, uh, how it treats that with uh, more of a transcendental purpose. I would say this movie is doesn't even want to come close to any kind of uh, transcendental connection with um, music and being endowed with those gifts and abilities. This is definitely humanism and the height of the glory of the human. That's how I saw it. And honestly, I just I'm really seeing it hard to take it another way than that. 
I mean, yes. I mean, in some sense, I definitely see where you're coming from. But I, I, th- I also think that what this movie is, like I think I just mentioned earlier, what this movie is more or less trying to say is, yes, success is more or less how you perceive it. Uh, and because of Fletcher, he was able to push himself beyond what he was able to whatever he thought he was able to do that's how he became the best is that he pushed himself well beyond what Fletcher or anybody else thought he could ever do and because of this yeah I guess it is rather humanistic that he has this drive to do so without even Fletcher being pushed even pushing him to go beyond what he was able to do he does it anyways and he's able to go past what anybody ever thought that could ever happen sure yeah it's humanistic but at the same time though it's also rather necessary, I feel, because yes, he doesn't exactly give all this in, to a creator or to a god or to the god that exists. But at the same time, he has a sense of personal uh, achievement in himself. He kind of needs that. And we still also kind of need that in our own lives at the same time as worshiping somebody else. Yeah, he does kind of at one point show that there is an obsession that can come of this, but also shows the bad parts about that. And I would say that, yes, but at the same time, you wouldn't have such a great ending like this. And it wouldn't be as impactful had anything been going against what this movie was also trying to portray. I think that with this ending and the thing that... This ending and with Neiman being the one who defines success, but shows that success is also something that comes from the inner self, that's where his love is. And whether or not he becomes the best, even though it's the movie insinuates that that is where that movie's headed, we don't really ever see that. But I would say, yes and no, yes, it is quite humanistic, but at the same time, it's very focused on human emotions and it's showing that this is the drive of something whether or not you are a believer of a faith or you are not or something else, we all can kind of relate to that this is what we view, what should be viewed as some kind of personal success is becoming the best in your own eyes. Yeah, I, I just feel that success without a transcendental connection or success without a higher purpose, without a purpose beyond yourself is still, uh, it's, it's ultimately hollow. Because you're not doing it for anything beyond yourself, just yourself. And I would say to me, that is the disappointing aspect of this movie. And especially the disappointing... Although the climax is great, I still feel it just kind of left me empty in that way without showing this character that I can really root for. That he is, he's learned to go beyond himself. He's learned to go beyond these worldly standards of Fletcher. I don't see that. I still just see him saying, look, look at what I've achieved. But I'll save a little bit more of those thoughts for uh, my uh, final thoughts. So if there's nothing else to say, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Whiplash? Yeah, uh, Whiplash is an absolute joy to watch. I've seen this so many times. This is my sixth time seeing it. And especially knowing and be also being in the situation at the same time as what this movie is also trying to portray, it's quite inspiring to say that you should always push yourself to be more than what you think that you can do. Now, of course, there is a danger to this, and it just portrays this through Fletcher, that even this uh, masochistic view of doing that is very harmful, and that you should not become what Fletcher is. But at the same time, there are ideas for that Fletcher has that are very important and are quite effective 
you need to push yourself farther than what you can than farther than what you think you can do in order to achieve what would be considered success. It does kind of break down the social norm and the social normal the social definition of success, which is everyone that you are very successful in terms of in terms of you are signed on with the NFL or you have a teaching job, you get number one as a teaching job, you, you, things like that. Whereas this movie is that's yes, but at the same time, music people can't not also be successful as well. They can. It's the fact that Neiman was able to push himself and become what he was able to become there in the end. That's the thing that is defined as success in this movie, doing things that you love. That being said, the other thing that I love about this movie is that this is one, this one in Cowboy Bebop are the two things that got me into actually liking jazz. It's kind of funny because I actually did not like it before I watched, before I saw both of these. And it showed me what good jazz actually is and how influential and how interesting its art form is. And since then, I have loved it ever since. And that's something that even in my own personal life and also being somebody who works with music and has had similar experiences to this, not necessarily one-to-one, of course, um, but having similar experience to this, it's something that really hits me in a place that not very many movies can. And I know from talking with drummers who actually, who are pretty, my cousin even himself is one of his favorite movies of all time. He says that there are things in this movie that really get to him because they are so spot on and so well, con- so well constructed. And... I gotta. I have to agree with him on a lot of those things because there are things that, even though I'm not a drummer, I play the trumpet. I see things in this movie that that really apply to me personally. That may not apply to other people. Yeah, there are a few problems that I didn't bring up, like some of the audio wasn't exactly on beat necessarily. Uh, some of the the visuals are maybe off a little bit as well. But for the most part, you can really tell that there's a passion that our main character, that uh, Damien Chazelle has to create this movie. And even then, coming from Guy and Madeline to this movie, being as successful as it is, it's very inspiring. Uh, yeah, for me, this is a 10 out of 10. I can't recommend this movie enough. E- even, even yeah, even though there are some humanistic elements to it. I think that the the way that the movie goes about being an, such an inspiration, that even though you go through so much crap just to become what is considered the best, I think that it's absolutely worth watching. Whiplash is undeniably a marvel in so many ways. It is just pure filmmaking. Chazelle crafts his love of music and cinema, bringing them together in a dynamic marriage. I'm not sure I've ever seen a movie like Whiplash dealing with the subject of music as a way of life dealt with in such a way. It's it's a hard film to process. Well, the editing, acting, cinematography, writing, and directing are some of the finest I've ever seen. But spending time in the world is just as nerve-wracking as Andrew feels while playing for Fletcher. What I'm saying is, for its technical achievements, along with acting and direction, it's marvelous, but enjoying myself is hard to do. And I don't believe this is meant to be an enjoyable type of movie. Clearly, Chazelle wants us to understand abuse in a musical setting isn't necessarily abuse. It's pushing a player to be one of the greats. Jazz is dying, and in order for it not to die, it can't be satisfied getting a participation trophy. Its players must shed blood, sweat, and tears to achieve musical marvels. Where my issue lies is with the lack of transcendence. In the Academy Award-winning film Amadeus, music and God are dealt with in a unique way. This film seems to be content with this humanistic mentality of playing music just so you can prove to others, and even yourself, that you're the best through your own power. 
no one endowed me with these gifts. It's just uh, my personal achievement alone. I feel this movie promotes making music into an idol, one that comes before all else. Yes, Andrew sees the consequences to his actions, but he nevertheless, well, his redemption is murky. He obviously redeems himself by his own passion, which does lend into the humanism, not to mention he only got where he is at by subscribing to a kill-or-be-killed Nietzschean mentality, where he puts music before his own health and safety of his life. And the problem is, I don't see Andrew truly learn anything by it, except Fletcher was right all along. Now, through my discussion with Alan, I have, this was my initial thoughts, I've softened on this idea. It does seem to be that Andrew has kind of succeeded beyond Fletcher, but I, I still don't really see that as a like, uh, major victory. Um, I do believe this movie like plays into the postmodernism of this film, depicting bad guys as good guys and vice versa, where are they at, and we exist to fulfill our own purpose. Those aspects do really bother me and diminish the impact of the film. No matter how great its technical elements are, I'm giving Whiplash a 7 out of 10, but for the first time ever, this rating will be accompanied with a not recommend. It is a good movie, and I don't want people to mistake that, but sitting through it isn't something I could recommend to people, especially since the lesson learned isn't worthy. And I think this is one of those movies, I think we we, we, we did mention this in Guy Madeline, but especially if you are a music person, this is going to hit you a lot harder than it would be with any other kind of uh, profession that you're wanting to go into. That's not to say you won't get anything out of it if you're of a different profession, because I, although I do play music or have played music, I also do many other things. That's not really my core joy of what I do in life. That's just something I have done on the side because partly because my parents made me and partly because I need money for college that gives me a scholarship. But even then, for both per, both people can definitely get something out of this movie uh, in terms of how to push yourself and continually push yourself. Yeah, those are there there are some positive elements about having your passion in life. I just feel like the conclusion that it draws from achieving that passion isn't a isn't something that we should emulate or pursue. And I'm not even sure this movie really is a cautionary tale. In some aspects, yes it is, but ultimately I don't really see it coming down to that. But nevertheless, listeners, we will be coming to you very soon with La La Land. I'm excited for that one and uh, a lot of other great reviews as well. So thank you so much for joining us on our review of Whiplash. Leave your comments below what you think of this movie. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite social media platforms so you can always stay up to date. You can also subscribe through email on the website. Uh, we've got really great things coming to you very soon. We love talking about movies. We love talking about them with you. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.